Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who picked his Twitter handle before he became a Serie A pundit. It's Abel Majarosh. Abel, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, first of all, uh, really excited to be on. And obviously, you've had a lot of good guests, so hopefully uh, I can live up to that introduction and uh, also to the, that lineup of guests. Abel is a television pundit for the Hungarian channel Sport TV, where he has generally covered German football, but more recently he's moved into the Italian football space. And that is what we're going to talk about today. More specifically, we're going to spend our time digging through the tactics of the Serie A title race this season. But before we get to that, thanks to those of you who have signed up to the Patreon. And as ever, a reminder that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth. So if you like this podcast, please do recommend it to pals who you think would enjoy it. Anyway, enough of that. Time to get talking, so. There's lots to get through, but it's probably best to begin with the big picture, Abel. So where are we at with the title race right now? Yeah, we're in this strange place because I feel like for most of the season, aside from kind of the hot start of Napoli and Milan, of course, um, this title race, I think for about two thirds of the season has been about Inter. And then like for about the last seven to 10 games, it's been about sort of Inter kind of falling out of it. And, And now... I think even at 538, this is the first sort of time when Inter are not the favorites and it's um, AC Milan are the favorites. So, and obviously conspicuously absence from this Titan race is Juventus, which I think now uh, for sort of the second year in a row now, at least, um, and and that's probably still surprising. Yeah. So just for, for clarity, as things stand... At the time of recording, Milan are top of the table with 66 points. Uh, Napoli on 63 points in second place. Inter are on 60 points, but they have a game in hand, so they could go up to 63 points if they win that. And then Juventus on 59 points in fourth place. We are going to talk about Atalanta as well, but mainly because they're a bit of an interesting test case when it comes to the top four of Italian football. Top five, I should say now. Uh, And they have 51 points with, again, a game in hand on the other sides. Just before we get into the teams themselves there's just a few little things I think are interesting to talk about one of the things that struck me was that this season there's been a lot of managerial upheaval there are a couple of managers so Stefano Pioli and Giampiero Gasparini at Milan and Atalanta respectively who have been in their jobs longer than a season but the other three clubs that we're going to talk about have Inzaghi, Spalletti and Allegri all appointed this season now obviously those are three managers who have managed around Italian football for a little while so I'm interested in in talking about this with you a little bit because I'm actually quite interested in the idea of, of coach genealogy it seems in this instance with Serie A that there is something going on which is you know coaches being replaced by other coaches Uh, And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what impact that sort of upheaval of managers has had on the title race this season. I think earlier on in the season, Arnett wasn't really the only one. There was other sort of broadcasters as well who were kind of marketing Serie A on the back of, you know, no longer having Cristiano Ronaldo or Romelu Lukaku as as kind of with the managers, right? And you you can add the return of Jose Mourinho and Maurizio Sarri, Saroma and Lazio respectively. And then obviously you just mentioned some of the other ones as well. So almost in the way that the managers kind of more, I mean, they're never more important than the players, but they're kind of a bigger draw. And I think that you certainly could have could have done a lot more with that. And I, I don't I don't think necessarily Serie A has done, but I think just sort of the people who follow it sort of think of it that way. And in that sense, it, it reminded me a little bit of how the Bundesliga used to have, you know, sort of the Nagelsmann team versus like the Tuchel teams and the Klopp teams. And I think having these kind of identities, although I think they're somewhat less pronounced in Italy, so... I wonder if we could maybe extend that because I think one of the interesting things for me is that so much of what we're going to talk about tactically today is about a coach coming into a club and taking a previous, I guess, body of work that another manager has done and having to fashion that into something else. So do you have any thoughts on on that aspect of it as well? How much of this title race season has been about managers having to take a, a slate that's already been written on and then try and make some sort of meaning out of it? I think most of it. I mean, I think most of the top teams, other than really, really Gasparini, who has been there for, for a while at Atalanta, have been about making the most of it. I think I think Milan is an example with with Pioli, who who, who was there. But at, I mean, basically, <laughs> I think I think the best way to characterize Milan is like they wanted Rangnick and then they wanted to give him all the power, and then like they basically were just like, well, I don't know if that was necessarily like planned. I mean, I would guess so, but it seems like they they have the most sort of Red Bullish team. Under Pioli, who you wouldn't really kind of think of that that way. Inzaghi going from Lazio and continuing and, and kind of 
I think up until a few weeks ago, you could certainly argue that he was upgrading over the Conte legacy and sort of expanding on, on a lot of the sort of schematic things that, that Conte was doing with, with a much more attractive, much more building out of the back. I think for me still, Inter is the team that's the most aesthetically pleasing to watch. So you can make that. And then obviously Spalletti going to Napoli. And, you know, I mean, this was a team under, under Gattuso that was already quite good and just missed Champions League on the last day of the season with kind of a dumb draw. And so Spalletti, who probably doesn't get as much credit for being an original, but I think he's probably the best person who copies or I think like maybe like the this is kind of weird weird thing to say about him given his age but he's kind of like the DJ of, of Italy because he remixes so many things you know whether it's the Sari things whether it's like taking the free kick routines from Dortmund you know he was all already doing things with Totti as a false nine in 2006 but it's you know he doesn't probably get enough credit for these things as well and then obviously Juventus as well who who tried with Pirlo and, and Marzio Sarri to to break away from what Allegri's tenure had deteriorated into, which is a very sort of almost Mourinho-esque sort of pragmatic machine that would fall short in the in the biggest of stages and, and just wasn't playing attractive football. And, and ironically, they've, they've, I don't want to say came crawling back to Max Allegri, but, but certainly handed him the keys, although to a much sort of different car. And, and I think in some ways that's been the, the crux of Juventus' season is what kind of car is Allegri driving and how much of it is he to blame for his driving, to use this metaphor, <laughs> and stretch it to its limits. But in that sense, I think that's probably also why the league is interesting, because there's so much of this upheaval, and, and you can extend it to some of the more interesting managers who we're probably not going to talk about. But, you know, I think Igor Tudor, who was um, on Pirlo staff and took over after match A3, and Metellas um, Verona, one of the more fun sides, um, Vincenzo Italiano, who switched Spezia for Fiorentina, and has given a lot of headaches to the top teams. And Juric uh, at Torino, uh, was very much a Gasparini student. So Sassuolo, you could always talk about the attack. So there's, I, this is why what, what, what's been my personal surprise with, with, with Serie A is just how interesting it is and how rich it is in, with these kind of tactics and when the coaches and I realize I'm not like breaking any new ground here by saying like Italian teams have good tactics. Like, thank you very much. But <laughs> it, it did surprise me. And, and I think, you know, I often wonder about my own agency in this, which is I think a lot of people tend to dismiss things to support their worldview, which is like not liking Serie A because it's the boring and defensive, right? It's a, it's a good excuse for you to not watch it. But I think for me, even prior to this year, when, when I would be analyzing Serie A, I always thought like the deeper I got into it, the, the more exciting I found it. And in that sense, it was similar for me with with the Bundesliga as well but I suppose that could just be my, my own biases at work is that <laughs> tend to get into these things and then I enjoy them and that does bring us on to the first listener question of the podcast because I think people like to talk about a national style when it comes to leagues and from what you're saying it sounds as though actually in terms of the tactics it's not really that easy to determine an overall style there so Grand Gendo had a question he said insofar as league-wide cliches about style of play are ever accurate given that quote-unquote defensive Serie A hasn't been applicable for a number of years now how would you best describe the league in general terms so do you want to sort of touch on on that to what extent does Serie I have a style and um, how would you best describe the league in generalist terms? I also don't really subscribe to the national or even I think in, in that sense like like Fabio Capello had this this thing after the Italian non-qualification of the World Cup was how you need to be more like can't do the Spanish style which, which he kind of equated with Guardiola which I already have a problem with and then to be more like the German style with, with Klopp and so I, I tend to think that it's not too productive in 2022 to talk about in sort of national or nationalistic terms because I think if you talk to any coaches and, and or even analysts it just seems like okay there are certain game models of course and there are styles and I'm not disputing that but in a lot of ways these are much more interconnected and, and interwoven the episode you did with with Jamie about sort of the postmodernist thing, I think it is very much closer to the truth insofar as we can get closer to it than these kind of reductionist narratives. But but to answer your question, I think the defensive style that used to be talked about, it's really not evident in that way. I think like Juventus probably get some of the criticism, but just in terms of the narrative of like who gets criticized for being too defensive and, and not really ambitious, it's really there's not too many other teams. So in, in that sense, I think that's already a testament to 
how much ambition is. I think ambition is a good word for Serie A because there's a lot of the teams who are even at the lower end of the table or mid-table who are certainly trying. So I would classify sort of, you know, even Sassuolo were trying maybe move on from the extreme building out of the back with six, seven, eight players under De Serbi to a little bit more vertical, but still keeping a lot of the principles of trying to have the ball and, and, and exit cleanly under Alessio um, Dionisi. I think similarly kind of total footballish can be found under Vincenzo Italiano with Fiorentina, who, I mean, this was a team that nearly got relegated last season with, with, with Vlaovic, but now they are, I, I think, probably the most ambitious side of Serie A and sometimes to their detriment, like it does, sometimes it does look like they're trying to do things like a little too much in terms of rotating the fullbacks inside and building up with, with two players and in like a lot of ways how like Tim Balter can be a little bit trying to do too much. And then, you know, you obviously have two different kinds of pressing styles. I think one of them is just of the, the man marking ones, the Gasparini school, I, w- I would call, which is pressing to generate offense and to be more of an offensive team because as Gasparini wants to do. And then I think something that, that Milan is doing, which is much more of a the Red Bull style. And then you still have what was probably the 2015, the Sarri ball teams, which, I mean, Napoli is a mix of that, but obviously Lazio with Sarri and in some ways um, Marco Giampaolo. That Sampdoria is doing a less successful version of it. So there's that. And then you still got kind of Mourinho as the sort of pragmatist who probably doesn't care about style and just wants to win. But I think that's probably where it is. And then some of the other teams, I think, are also interesting and maybe don't don't necessarily have the resources. But, but some, someone like Empoli, who I think most people thought would be one of the relegation candidates as a opponent's team, they, they played a, a really, really, like they had the most possessions and the most, most intensity, at least the first half of the season and played this diamond that was giving a lot of headaches and also conceded probably the most goals. So, but, but uh, you know, they have Andrea Zoli, who, who was the coach at, at Roma when, when, when Taddei there, in fact, Rodrigo Taddei is kind of, his signature move is called the Aureliano because of Andrea Zoli's influence. So I think that those, those are things that I, I kind of enjoy finding out about is, is maybe not necessarily the top tier, but even some of these, you know, the sort of sm- smaller masters of, of the of the industry. We should say that we talked a little bit about the Fikayo Tamori interview that was given in The Guardian this week to Nicky Bandini, which was an interesting interview as well worth checking out. There was a touch on tactics in that interview. So I'll read the quote out, actually, because I think it's quite a good quote. So Tamori said, in England, it's more like basketball. Football is more like basketball. Everything's end to end. There's more intensity. A lot happens reactively. In Italy, it's more like American football. It's like you have plays. When the ball's here, I need to be here. When the ball goes, I now have to be two metres over in that direction or be looking for this particular player. In England, it's very much off the cuff and things happen so fast you can be attacking one minute and next the ball's flipped over your head and you've got to run back 30 yards then you're back on the attack here it's more like okay the ball's there where's my teammate where's the opposition if the ball goes over the top I need to be in a position where I can leave the striker and get there but if the ball goes into feet I'm in a position to go press uh, so obviously lots of interesting things there now I'm not sure how much I would read into Tamori's account of what tactics are like in England because I think he's largely managed by Frank Lampard there so um, I'm definitely taking that with a pinch of salt but what do you make of his comments there in terms of his descriptions of the way that tactics are treated in in Italy versus in England? The intensity thing in in, in Serie A is is interesting Uh, I think I have tweeted about this where it doesn't always end up being backed by numbers or they're kind of hard to be quantified by numbers and I think now with some of the public realm you can look at things like pressures and PPDA, but I found that sometimes to be like not particularly useful. Like for example, Fiorentina, and I think Fiorentina are a team that have like probably the fewest pressures. And I think anybody who's watched the Fiorentina team, uh, or even just like lately in the match against Inter, where they just played this full man marking that was super super destructive, but it might not show up in sort of those definitions necessarily. Like I mean, I'm not trying to sign like an anti stats guy because it's clearly not my position, but. The metrics that I did like recently is the build-up disruption percentage, which is Sacrament has a has has put out some wonderful research, and, and I think like what I found that to be interesting is that so basically they do um, uh, this BPD, which which basically kind of talks about the destructive effect of uh, pressing on the opponent's pass completion rate, and the top two teams are Torino and, and Verona in, in Europe, and then they're followed by Köln. And Stefan Baumgarten, I think Liverpool are in the top five. Um, I think Leeds are seventh or something in Atalanta or Leipzig. So kind of the teams that you'd have there. But that probably matches more closely than, than what I have seen. As far as 
this kind of American football plays nature of it. I think that's that's true, particularly like where I've noticed that is that there tends to be much more of an emphasis. And this was also true last couple of years when I would watch Milan, for example, with, with Donnarumma, is the emphasis on building out of the back. And I think like Handanovic at Inter and, and almost almost every goalkeeper other than, for example, the, the Gasparini, Juric, you know, so, so some of those teams don't want to build out of the back. But generally, a lot of the other ones will, will incorporate the goalkeeper in, in some ways. So as far as the set play aspect of it from, from, from goal kicks, I think that's definitely true just organizing and, and protecting against honors. But but I do think there's also these teams, which, I mean, since you and Bielsa, I kind of dubbed the murder ball teams. <laughs> they are trying to create more chaos because I think certainly like the Serie A of the 2015-16, when Mansari came, reminded me about, at the same time, more fluency, right? Because just, just having the ball, I mean, currently Lazio under Sarri have like, the ball in play time in their matches is like three minutes more than any other team. But I think that was more structured. And now I, I do see a lot more teams. I think Milan is a good example as well, who, who want to thrive on that, that chaotic, uh, things and, 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 and want to be more transition oriented and, and make it more about pressing and intensity. And I know even, even some of the coaches like, like Tudor and Gasperini will talk about how it goes up to a certain part of the game. Like, you know, I mean, just Verona being a team I follow a lot. Is, is Tudor talks a lot about how for 60 minutes, you know, we had it. And then after that, you kind of just hang on. And But it's uh, in terms of the intensity and the pressing. And, and it's so so I, I, I get what Fika Tomori is saying, but, but I also don't think that's like 100% accurate, of course. One final question on the stylistic side of things. So Richard Coles asks, do the top Italian teams have any stylistic traits in common that are distinct from those found in other leagues, elite sides? So I don't know if you'd have any answers to that. I've kind of like characterized it as sort of four or five teams like to play counterattacking football with often a back five, not as much sort of intensity. So these would be like Venezia, Udinese, Spezia, Cagliari, who a lot of times like aren't too interesting and mostly want to stay in the league whether it's because of a talent deficiency and there are two promoted teams and Cagliari who now under Walter Mazzari um, are actually have changed that and become a much more pressing team and have put up some impressive performances. You also have the Mourinho Roma and the Allegri Juve teams who I would kind of characterize as Champions League contenders certainly at least but are primarily defensively oriented although I think Roma do generate a lot of the chances and, and, and the mo- take the most shots in the league and have the most counterpressing. But in, in general, I think certainly Allegri um, has kind of conceded this season to be as one where he, like I think the Villarreal example is a good one where, where they've tried to play. Every time they've played, and Fiorentina was one in November, every time they've tried to kind of dominate, and he just says, we don't have the players to, to play that way. And then they just say, I think... That's an approach that's not too far off from Mourinho, who will always take pragmatism. I kind of talked about the the Red Bull style. So the other team next to Milan would be Genoa, who have since Johannes Spores and uh, their new ownership has taken over. I've appointed Alexander Blessing, who's Red Bull, a Leipzig uh, former coach and was at Ostend as well. So you know his approach and you've seen it give even Atalanta and some of the other teams trouble. And they finally started winning now, but certainly become a much more intense team. And then you have the teams that I've mentioned who are the Gasparini, the murder ball, so Atalanta, Verona, Torino, people who have connection to Gasparini or, or Juric, which is always a back three, the wide wide overloads, combinations, wide diamonds, high press, man marking. The offense can fluctuate between these teams. And then you have, I think, much more of the sort of some pressing and, and possession teams, which you know I would characterize Lazio, Napoli, and Inter. Maybe sort of the most aesthetically pleasing football when it works and then you know, sometimes when it doesn't. So I think what we should do from here is we should go through the clubs in reverse order as they are in the table. And hopefully we can fly over the first couple and, and sort of get into the meat of the of the, the more interesting ones later on. So let's kick off with talking about Atalanta. And as we've said, they're not really in the title race in any real sense, although they've definitely been title race contenders in the last few seasons. So I think they're worthy of, of mention. Obviously, they're an outlier side. They are a team who are very well run financially and they overcome a lot of the, the those sort of financial hurdles that uh, a lot of smaller clubs maybe don't. And they've also got a bit of an 
I guess an outlier playing style. There certainly were an outlier playing style in the last couple of seasons. You said to me that you didn't think that Atalanta were quite so unusual this season. Um, so do you want to expand on that? Part of it is just like how, particularly with, with, with Ivan Juric being a former Gasparini player, has taken that approach and from Verona to Torino. And then I think Igor Tudor kind of has built on Juric's work at Verona in terms of playing the same defense and then added more offense, which Gasparini has this saying about you be your own third man, right? Is in some ways uh, center backs. And I think you can certainly see an element of that. So I just mean like that there's now three teams that are playing that style and, and that makes it perhaps more predictable. But I think in that just also Atalanta, I think are probably coming to the end of this cycle, which has been enormously successful and they have achieved way beyond their means in terms of financial might and whatnot. And just to put some numbers on that as to like why this is happening. So I would say the last three, four years, the, the front four of Duvan Zapata, Ilicic, Ilicic and Papu Gomez and, and Luis Muriel. I think obviously Papu Gomez is no longer on the team with after the fallout with Gasparini and, and Gasparini isn't always the easiest person to get along with. But this is a quartet that would have anywhere from 40 to 38 to 51 is the range of league goals. In 1920, they'd have almost 58 goals. This season, Duvan Zapata uh, has been injured. I mean, Ilicic in, in New Year doesn't really play because he's relapsed back into his personal issues with, with depression and the team has kind of granted him a leave. And Muriel was injured a lot. So they have 16 goals if we think of this this sort of trio now. And, and even if you add Pasalic as the fourth best scorer, it's 25 goals. So just to kind of give you an idea of the downgrade from from those. So it's it sometimes it really is that simple because all the defensive numbers are, are exactly the same. They do have a little bit of a problem with Juan Musso as a 20 million signing from Udinese, who has been kind of a below average goalkeeper as well. So I think that one. And then the big thing with Atalanta was always just to be the, the, the wingbacks, right? The being the sort of free man arriving at the back post and scoring. And particularly now, Gossens has joined Inter in January. And even before that, he wasn't really, it's kind of injured after the Euros. So this is, uh, again, in the last sort of four seasons, they would get an average of like 13 goals and nine or 10 assists. Most of this is Gosens, but some of the other ones. Now they have Zapacosta, Gosens, uh, Joachim Mele, and Pezzella. Sort of the four people who fill those spots have three goals and six assists. So this is a team that is not no longer an elite attacking team in terms of goal scores. They still have very, very good underlying numbers, probably about, so in terms of like expected goals, it's like 1.5, whereas the peak at Atlanta teams would be around 1.8, 1.9. So, you know, pretty much um, still in the like 85th percentile or so but I would say it's it's just more down to that and there are some like positives I would say like Tian Kup Miners I think Malinowski in certain games Pashalic in first stretches and they've also had to deal with just a ton of injuries Demiral Merich Demiral I think is, a, is overall positive but they're just much more beatable in, in in sort of bigger games and you know you've seen them like Milan had a good plan with the way they used fullbacks creatively Jose Mourinho in both of the, the Roma matches had very good plans of taking advantage of two V2s in, in the back and using Tammy Abraham and, and Zaniolo creatively and using their full, using their wing backs kind of to make plays and just send the ball over the top. So I think it's all of those things and kind of small margins with, with Atalanta and but probably just injuries and personnel rather than really anything systemic. And like, like you mentioned before with recruitment, it's, you know, it also takes a while to always replenish and, and now I think the other thing with them is going forward is is the new ownership under Stephen Payuka and Sartori, Giovanni Sartori, the, the man who kind of put this team together, who has been involved in a falling out with Gasparini, is set to leave a year before his contract runs out. So it's very much seems like a end of a cycle for Atalanta. I have a quote here from Gasparini, actually, uh, just talking about identity and evolution as a, as a football coach so he says the identity you create in a team must always be reinforced you must grow and improve day by day because if you do not improve you are done those who stop have lost as a sort of very uh, blood and thunder quote from him there but in terms of the next few steps for Atalanta what do you anticipate those being do you think it's going to be the same sort of stuff with tweaks or do you think it's it's going to be you just mentioned there there's a new sporting director coming in and, and, and there may be a fallout do you, do you think that Atalanta go in a different direction from here there is some question to Gasparini's future from what I've seen I think a lot of it will depend on kind of how they finish the season and I actually was there in Bergamo and, and saw them against Leverkusen and they were really really impressive in that game in terms of I mean uh, 
the three two very much flattered Leverkusen and, and particularly with Cope Miners and Muriel, they were they were all over them. And but there are some flexibilities, like in terms of sometimes he will play a back four, it doesn't work. Sometimes he'll play kind of an asymmetric back three. There's some players like Cope Miners who has become a contributor after kind of signing there. The hope is that, you know, some of the other ones that they've invested in, like I think Malinovsky has certain moments where he's he's a standout player, not always consistently. And then some of the other ones, like Pessina, who I don't think has developed. I mean, he was very much in the Italian national team picture, even at the Euros, not so much uh, since then. Miranchuk and Valer Mihaila, some of the younger players. But yeah, I think a big question is what happens because, you know, Ilicic and Muriel and Zapata, they're all expiring next summer. So in that sense, there's, I mean, Ilicic will most likely just kind of stay on slash kind of retire with the team and no longer be part of it, but feel on the field stuff. But ideally, you know, you would probably try to get some good money for Muriel or Zapata. And although, you know, after this season, Zapata, see if he can come back during the season. There's some indications that that he might, but, you know, he re-injured himself uh, when he tried to come back earlier against Cagliari. So, and Muriel has had a his worst season in, in years, so mostly to injuries. But so their their value is a lot lower. But the issue is if you end up selling, I mean, in some ways, like you you don't need both of them. And, and I think that 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 was one lesson from this season is perhaps you, you know Muriel is certainly not necessarily a, a starting caliber. Like he's a super super <laughs> per ninety god off the bench, but he hasn't really been proven himself to be capable of leading the line. And, and Zapata, in that sense, is much more indispensable, even though as he enters his, his 30s. So I would imagine that he would be the one that they would try to keep and be a part of it. But they do still have, you know, a lot of young players out on loan. I think the new loan rules will impact them, but plenty of center backs out that, you know, some of them, some of them are already playing as Calvini. And so that in that sense, it's not that that won't really change too much. I think there's also certain financial limitations, even with the new ownership that that will limit them. But we will see. I think one thing that we do know with 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 a lot of the ownership, particularly a lot of the American ownership over the last years, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to hard to predict how their vision versus what the club vision is, uh, how, how that comes together. And there has been examples of, of tension, whether it was at Fiorentina before or, or Roma under Jens Palota. Uh, so we shall see how that progresses. Let's move on to talk a little bit about Juventus. Juventus, I think, are interesting in terms of the conversation actually I had with Omar Vind last week about the role of tactics at elite clubs. You've mentioned this a little bit already, this this idea that it looked as though Juventus wanted to move past the sort of solid Allegri ball that they were playing previously and bring in maybe some more interesting coaches and they brought in Sari and they brought in Pirlo. And then, as you said, not quite crawling back to Allegri, but but not far off that. So what do you make of that in terms of the background context of Juventus being a club who are expected to win, they're expected to have great talent, and they're expected to perform in the Champions League every season? I mean, I think in the larger context of, you know, needing to shed Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, being the Super League originators and obviously the financial burdens for, for Juventus were, were a little bit too hard to overcome. So... In that sense, I think you can justify it by saying, okay, well, you tried to be more sort of a ball dominant, uh, aesthetically pleasing football team under Sarri and, and Pirlo. And I mean, you can argue the nuances, but overall, it, it's kind of hard to say they were successful. Certainly not in the Champions League. And then I think with Allegri now, sort of second, second time around, you have, uh, I think, much more of a, a realization. I think certainly, I think the way they started the season, has determined a lot of things because he did need to almost like reteach them defense because that's that's the part that has gone missing under Pirlo and, and, and Sarri to a lesser extent. And I mean, Allegri can certainly do that. Now, the way the season started is they had, you know, one, one point after three games and, and everybody was talking about Juventus as rele- relegation candidates. And after that, Allegri, the whole season has been saying that if they just had three or four more points, then they'd be right in the, the title race. And, and now, last 19 matches, they have eight points more than anybody and a 16 game unbeaten streak in the league. Yet, I think everybody's kind of considering them a disappointment because of how these games are going about. This, this is a team that just very, very much struggles to get shots generate open play shots, expected goals, certain things like that. So it's basically they're about two open play shots down from Sarri ball. Open play goals are a little bit down from Pirlo, like 0.3. 
OpenPlay XG is, is, is under one. So none of those things are good. And then they just, you know, actually spent a lot of money in the winter break on Dusan Vlaovic, arguably the best striker. But it hasn't really made them more exciting. It made them much more, I don't want to say tactically flexible, because it, essentially like the, the issue that Allegri has is that he has a team that almost doesn't have a midfield. I mean, now, now it kind of does, but now it's injuries and, and, and sort of player uses. So the defensive part of it is generally solid with Delict and whatnot, but he doesn't have fullbacks who are particularly creative. I think Cuadrado has been quite good, but um, some of the other ones like Alexandro has been somebody who is not a good investment for the 10, 11 million that he makes per year and not much of an output there. And then the biggest issue is Locatelli's use. And I think the Juve fans are usually angry about how Locatelli, most people know him from Sassuolo and the entire national team is a guy who's a box-to-box kind of mezzala, arise and finishes. And and in Allegri's system, first half of the season, he was forced to play as a number six, as a deep-lying playmaker where, where he really isn't very good and was pressed a lot and too much because the options and he play a lot of Weston McKenney as, as the box-to-box runner. The idea from January on was to play Zakaria from Gladbach, who then did a very good job against Verona and then got hurt and then basically has been out since then. So you still have Rabiot there. They've gotten rid of Benzancourt and then gotten rid of a lot of the guys that don't really fit Allegri's system, like Kulusevsky, who are <laughs> kind of thriving at Spurs. And then up top, it was, you know, Dybala and Morata and Chiesa. And obviously, fitting Chiesa into a 4-3-3 and, and, and fitting Dybala into a 4-3-3 was the much bigger problem. So that started in, in the early part of the season and, and it really didn't work. So they went back to much more of a 4-4-2 with Chiesa as one of the, the right wingers. And he really, really struggled there. And Morata, particularly when he's the kind of the lone striker, he's the main striker, that wasn't really his game. And then Dybala just with injuries. And obviously now they're letting him walk away, not being offered a new contract. So it's kind of that sense where, where it's a, a mishmash of talent and the coach and Allegri staff, who I think you know, many of them are, many of them are really excellent, have just realized that it's really difficult. Like even against like a Salernitana a couple of weeks ago, who are Serie B team now as the last place team with a bunch of issues, they really, really struggled to, I mean, they, generated chances but this is a team that like almost can't score more than two goals in a game you know in that sense it's really tough when you look at them from the names on the roster and but it somewhat makes sense in this context and i think like if you're allegri you're in this bind because okay you're you're 16 games unbeaten and you've climbed up the table and now you know you're you're vaguely in contention and certainly like and i've been saying on the tv show that making fourth place is their Scudetto after the first few weeks. And I think that's now, you know, factor eight has them a 70% to, to, to reach the Champions League. So that's doable. But at the same time, you've gone out against Villarreal, uh, which was a very favorable matchup, I think, uh, just past history and whatnot. And, you know, certainly didn't look great. Although I think Arlegi would say that he tried in the second game and, and it blew up in his face when he tried to have, you know, this sort of open game with Danilo moving inside in the build-up to make a back three and have Artur, who Artur is somebody who he didn't want and desperately wanted to get rid of. And again, that's the, that's also the issue with Juventus is not having resale value for some of the more established players. So, so Kulusevski and Bentancur had resale value. So that, that was probably the reason why they moved. But you have still a lot of these guys like Bernardeschi or, or Moise Ken who are good name players, but uh, in some ways they're depreciating assets. So it's been it's been a very tough thing with Allegri, and I think certainly the criticism of Allegri is of him being perhaps past it, and perhaps somebody who, having been out of coaching for for two three years, is maybe no longer up to it. I think I think it's probably a little bit overblown, but I can see the the element of it, and and you do certainly people who follow Juventus very very closely will, are always kind of disappointed with with the approach. I think in a little bit like like you and Om were talking about how they're a little bit disappointed with Ancelotti. Of this is kind of the best you can get out of this group of talent. I am conscious of time and uh, I, I would rather talk about more interesting teams. But quickly, before we move on to Inter, what's your take on where Juventus will be next season? Do you think that they'll stick with Allegri and do you think they'll be able to challenge for the title? Or do you think that there's uh, a sort of limit factor to Allegri ball and, and it may be reached now in the current tactical evolution? I think they will stick to it. I think just for like lack of an alternative. And I think just particularly because of like, I think now suddenly those seasons where they win the title and then like, they might, they might get bounced out in like the round of 16 or the final eight doesn't seem so bad after you, you know, you, you suddenly don't win the title now for the second season in a row. And it's also, say, 
fairly costly, although they did inject a lot of money over the winter break, like 400 million or so, and 100 million went towards player guys. And, and I think you certainly, you know, figure out a way to play without Dybala. And maybe you get back Chiesa and you, you kind of, I think if you're Allegri and, and you're sort of the way Nedved and co are kind of thinking is, well, we need to try it a full season, see how it works with Vlaovic up top because he came mid-season, Chiesa went down and then Morata and whatever else we can kind of gin up out of that. Maybe incorporate some of the, some of the younger guys. I mean, Minati is, as a, a guy who is a U19 star for Italy and for Juve is, is, is an up-and-coming player. Maybe Caio George if he can come back from injuries. So kind of couple together enough offense and then you, you hope Locatelli, Zaccaria and Rabiot and then what can he, I mean, you, you know, I think, I think they don't really have much of an alternative now. Having made these winner transfers, I think could have been a thing where, where they waited out. But I think without them, they probably would not be in this position to have climbed up. And in that sense, the timing of this VRL exit was very unfortunate. Well, let's talk about Inter, the team that you've said you think are the most interesting team aesthetically. I think the big question is the shift from Antonio Conte to Inzaghi. And I suppose the, the question I have is, is what you think that that succession looks like. So I could argue that Conte to Inzaghi is a, a smart shift, given that there are similarities between them tactically, or at least there is the possibility of moving from one to the other without too many problems. But I heard Nathan Clark talking about the shift from Conte to Inzaghi on the Exchange podcast this week, and he suggested that Inzaghi has actually got an edge from following on after Conte because of all of the, the vestigial automatisms that Conte instills in the side. And so you could use that as a way of explaining the fact that Inter started off quite well and then have dropped away and lost their ad- advantage a little bit because there is that now critical distance from, from Antonio Conte. So I wondered if you bought into that theory. Do you think that that, that is the case? And, and how do you understand that, that sort of shift then from Conte to Inzaghi as a, as a tactical one? Certainly, this was a much better argument about a month ago, <laughs> or maybe even two months ago, when 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 it was like all, all the big five leagues are decided and Inter, you know, like ninety percent to win the title and unstoppable juggernaut. And now, you know, now no longer seems that way. But yeah, I think just from a tactical point of view, Inzaghi has much more sort of freedom to his players. So a couple of examples, and I, I did talk a little bit about with um, Ishram Beragi, who's a match analyst for the national team, and he. He's done some really good work on Inter. And so, for example, just the way they kind of manipulate man orientations, which I, I mentioned that a lot of the teams, not just the Gasparini, but but even some of the, like Fiorentina, played man orientations on them recently. And, and Inter really kind of struggled again. But uh, essentially, like, there's a couple of ways for Inter to, to have these kind of manipulations, which is play a back three that's more asymmetric. So there's much more freedom for a guy like Bastoni or Skriniar to, to move up. Basically, what they want to do is manipulate the um, opposition sort of central midfielders by moving Brozovic either wide or Hakan Chalanoglu, who's the left eight in this in this system. As they always keep the width with um, the two wingbacks, Perisic and Dumfries, they often open the sixth space of the opposition by moving these players. Chalanoglu usually will come back or sometimes Perella as well, but one of the eights will come back and then one of the Brozovic will move wide or drop in the back line, and then that opens up the middle, which where Jekyll is much more suited to this kind of receiving the ball and then laying it off and then kind of launching an attack. And that was very, very successful, particularly in the earlier parts of the season. They can also move into a 4-2-4 with, with, with Brozovic and then just have sometimes even a 4-1-5 with, with Barella pushing up and then really, really stretches the opposition. And then, again, the idea is to create space for Jekyll, who comes back a lot, or Lautaro Martinez, and then just kind of have them play the layoff, and then it will be some sort of direct ball to Dumfries or Perisic uh, as, as the wingbacks. Another thing they do is a wide rotations, which I think Conte did as well, but but this was much more like he involves, uh, Inzaghi will involve, in some ways similar to what Conte with Barella would always go wide as well, but, but it would involve a half-space use of central forwards as well, and then much higher wingbacks. And I think what I really liked is, is just the advancing side center backs of Bastoni and Skriniar, both particularly Skriniar have had a really, really impressive season. So I think in that sense, it's become it's become a much more versatile team and a team that is much more comfortable under pressure in terms of building out of the back and really, really wants to do it almost at, at all costs. Now, as far as why that's gone awry in terms of the season, I think there's a couple of things going on. When it comes to that, probably the number one reason is, is is Brozovic, who just does an ungodly amount of work because he's essentially like 
against the ball, he's pressing the opponent number six kind of near the box. And then he's supposed to like drop back for the balls over the top to protect his own space in front of the center backs. And then he's still, he's basically the creative hub in a way like Joshua Kimmich is for Bayern, where he's the most press resistant player. He can carry, he can pass through, he can you know, chip balls through, he'll drop into the back line, do all those things. Without him, in games that he's missed recently, which is the one against Torino and Fiorentina, and he also was suspended for the Sassuolo match. And it's no surprise that the biggest sort of thing was to renew his contract, which, which he did now. Uh, and they haven't won either of those games. And it's not only that they haven't won, it's that the options that Inzaghi has tried, which is playing Barella as a number six, playing Gallardini, Vecino, Akanchalangu, basically like Vidal, like any, any sort of central midfielder. And it's not, it's not worked at all. So they just don't have the, the qualities on the ball. And then in some cases, like Akanchalangu against the ball as well. So it's been that. And then sort of this, basically, I think, before the season, the argument against Inter was, well, they've just produced a historic quarter in terms of losses, <laughs> financial losses, and they were forced to, you know, sell Lukaku and Hakimi and then Conte and then Christian Eriksen having to leave. And in that sense, they've done a really good job of replacing them. That was sort of right around November with Joaquin Correa, Dumfries, Dzeko, Chalanoglu. And it's almost like nothing has changed. And it's even a more impressive Inter because they've qualified to to knock out rounds, which Conte couldn't do from the Champions League. But now it seems like something that Inzaghi's teams have suffered with, which is they always seem to kind of fall apart in the spring. And some unlucky things, I think, against Liverpool, with Alexis Sanchez, and then just sort of some Barella being suspended for those games, just sort of injuries. And then some of those players who are squad players, like the Vidal, Sanchez, Ranocchia, Di Marco, who were sort of well-known players, but perhaps unable to help them. And I think one underrated aspect is earlier, like in the earlier seasons, there were a lot more teams in this area where you could have gotten away with playing some of those players. But now there's probably at least like 10 or 12 teams that I think Inter will need to struggle against. So it's like not Salernitana, because like Lautaro Martinez has, I think, eight goals for like the last four or five months. And half of them are against Salernitana and the other ones are against like relegation sides. But against even like a Sassuolo or like a Verona or, or some of these teams, like Inter really need to play at like 90 to 95%. And I've looked into some of the minutes played and almost every single player coming off of the Euros, which for Italy was very, very taxing and some of their other plays as well was taxing, that they've exceeded the minutes that they played last season. So I think all of these are kind of arguments, but I, I still think it's there's some of the other things that are unknowable to us from the outside as to why this doesn't seem to work because I think even, even when, when, when they are losing, there, there's certain things that, that look really, really good. And it could just be just one of those two things, whether it's not having Brozovic or, you know, Jeko, who isn't really uh, above average finisher. He's very much a volume shooter over his career and was having a good finishing run, particularly in the early first two, three months is now reverted. So these kind of things. Gosen's kind of coming late and, and not being able to make a contribution. It's a lot of these kind of compounding effects that have resulted. I think also people kind of forget how much they overperformed last year with, with Conte. I think there were about 15 points over the expected points. And now everybody just kind of remembers that Inter walked to the title. And I think that had a little bit to do with them maybe not playing as much and Milan kind of falling apart and some of these other things. You categorized Inter in the in the introduction as a sort of press and possess side. You've talked a lot about the possession side, but I do think that the pressing side is quite interesting for them as well. In preparation for this podcast, I spent some time watching a few Inter games. And for example, in the Milan derby, the most recent one, Inter went man for man in a high press in early phases, got a goal and dropped back into a, a sort of a mid block, which dropped a little bit deeper. And so to what extent do you think that there is strength to Inter's approach because they are able to be flexible in that sort of in the pressing phases of the game yeah i think in, the, in that sense like unlike milan or like even the red bull teams whose primary objective with pressing is to pressing to score i think as Jesse marsh likes to call it i think with inter it's much more just to kind of press to win back possession just to kind of so they can have the ball i don't think of them as a team that is very intense although i think they do have the highest sort of average defensive action distance but i don't think of them as a particularly overly aggressive team I think it's much more of a, like, like for example, or like Fiorentina, which, which I think have similar metrics to them, but I always think of Fiorentina as a much more aggressive team, whereas Inter, that there are elements of it, but I think even Lautaro and Dzeko, it's not necessarily kind of what they're best at. And they do have very, very good center backs, perhaps even individually, certainly with Skriniar and Bastoni and Defray, who's been injured a little bit, but perhaps the most talented 
center back trio. So they're much more comfortable doing those phases of high pressing, but, uh, but, and, and Brozovic as well. But I think for them, it's just more about winning the ball back. So then they can have it and then they could set the tempo. And it's, and it's, I don't think of them much more as, as a team that necessarily wants to, wants to press the score. Let's move on to talk about Napoli. Napoli, again, are described by you as a press and possess side. And I guess in that respect, these two are probably the most similar teams in the top five to one another. So do you want to just talk to us a little bit about where you see the differences lying between Napoli and Inter in terms of the tactics? Spalletti will very, very rarely play a back three. I think he has done it once or twice in some sort of matchups. Not because he's dogmatic, because I think it's like anything... Other than dogmatic, I think General Spalletti's thing has been to kind of adapt to the trends. I mean, you know, the early parts of the season were about them having the highest defensive line and playing the most aggressive. The coach that I would compare Spalletti to is much more like Mancini, who then you can kind of make the inter-connections there. And I mean, I think with, with Di Lorenzo and Insigne, it's also an easy connection to make, which is pretty early parts of the season. I really, really enjoyed Napoli's sort of flexible build-up where they would have a a three plus one sometimes with Di Lorenzo being a side center back and really just have multiple ways of playing out of the back. The roles are probably a little bit different. I think that that's primarily where I would say they differ and then obviously the way they the way they set up their attack. So the midfield roles you have Andre Frank Zambo Anguisa, who I would say for the first two, three months was one of the players of the Serie A in terms of a guy who you know I, I got a chance to watch him live in Verona a couple of weeks ago and it just seems impossible to take the ball off of him just because of the size and technique and like you're not supposed to have that kind of size and and be that sort of delicate on the ball and I mean that's that's also kind of true for a couple of other guys like Kali de Koulibaly just just it seems like it's an impossible way to to get get past him and Rahmani is like that too just just giant human beings who are also super super fast so Giovanni Simeone who is now like one of the breakout stars of this season just had to be offside every time almost I felt like because there was no way for him to otherwise have any kind of an advantage and even none. But Fabian Ruiz as a, as a guy who can really, really slip behind the sort of first first pressing line and, and then Zielinski as a guy who was really, really excellent in terms of drawing out man marking and, and the opposition center backs and then opening the spaces. So the, the, those are a little bit different than from, from Inter. And then I think the main difference is just having inverted wingers. So Insigne, who I think has just been one of the more disappointing players, he still has like one open play goal, but he scored that in like, couple weeks ago so in a way how Italy struggled it's not unrelated to to him struggling but he's still such a important figure and you know with him going to uh, major league soccer it seems somewhat unfathomable to leave him out but but there there might be a sense that a team with El Gifel Mas who is much more of a creative half space player and inside player would be better and then Politano is a very classic inverted winger on the right side and then Osimhen is a is a striker who I think very very unique because he just stretches and just constant sort of effort. And I think like Ricardo Kaká is kind of an example I kind of think about, which is a weird comparison, but just boundless energy of a guy who's gonna like maybe not get past you with the second one, the third run, but he's gonna wear you out with the fifteenth run or the third fifth time he makes the run. And there's just so much stuff that he does, and it allows. Spalletti to have a get out of jail free card because they do want to build out of the bag they do want to do that but when teams can press them when you have Osman which is and they did not have him for a long stretch when he had that sort of brutal facial injury that made them one-dimensional and then made them afford to be using three Mertens as a false false nine in terms of ten and they can do that so they can be flexible but when they have Osman they can just go over the top and then that adds an extra dimension to the team so I think that's what I like about Napoli and in some ways I think their ceiling is, is perhaps the highest of all of these teams. But my criticism with them is that they don't often reach it. So there's like some games against like Lazio, I kind of remember that they reached it. But there is a thing where Spalletti sometimes just seems to be content and it, 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 it does fall back into kind of the old Italian manager cliches where he seems to be content with, okay, the game is 0-0 or it's a draw or whatever and they don't need to, or they can turn it back on and on. I think recent game against Udinese was like that where they were like just marked out by a good man marking and then, then he made us, but, but to his credit, I and mean, this is what makes it really interesting is that he defies those kind of cliches is that he always kind of tinkers and then, okay, he's going to bring on Dries Mertens at, at, at halftime and then that basically uses him as a number 10 and that, that negates the opposition six who then now can no longer cover and then he needs to play between the lines and then that basically wins the game for them. So 
it's interesting, and and they have had to deal with a lot of injuries, but have a really really interesting set pieces probably early parts of the season. So I mean, you and I talked before the podcast about the different coaches and overlaps between Sarri and his staff, and you know Giovanni Marticello and Spalletti, who you know likes to copy these ideas, and whether it's the Guerrero set piece from from Dortmund, and he very openly says that he's got no shame about it, and he should. So in that sense, I think you know everybody thought first maybe 10 matches of the season that it's kind of Napoli's Scudetto maybe with Milan's and that very quickly faded with AFCON and then the, the injuries and now I think there is much more of a buzz growing and now perhaps you get you get kind of the sense that Napoli could be the team if well I think a lot of it depends on this weekend with uh, Atalanta Napoli and the Derby della Italia between Inter and Juve if, if Milan slip up then maybe Napoli can kind of bounce. I guess the interesting tactical questions about Napoli is all surrounding the the central midfield option. Obviously, most people will talk about Napoli as playing a 4-3-3, but often it will, in possession, look much closer to a 4-2-3-1. Zielinski is the player who is quite flexible in that respect, so he can play, often does play almost in a front line. It can almost become like a 4-2-4 in build-up play. But also there will be times when he does drop back alongside the the other central midfielders as well. We had a patron question from Costa Markopoulos who said, in your opinion, what's the best midfield structure for Napoli? It seems like we get overwhelmed by a high quality press when Ruiz and Lobotka, Angisa, Deme operate in a narrow double pivot while Zielinski is in a more advanced role. They're very evident in matches versus Barcelona and Milan, but yeah, interested to hear about your your thoughts on the on the structuring of that midfield three in particular. You can disconnect Napoli from the front four with Jelinski if you count him. He had a brilliant first half of the season and really hasn't been that impactful. But yeah, ideally, I think Deme and and Lobotka are somewhat interchangeable. Um, Lobotka probably a player with much more press resistance, and Sky who just makes a lot of these simple passes that move the ball. And then Fabian Ruiz, I think, is the guy who almost, almost like kind of the, the the genius or somebody who can who can move intelligently without the ball. And but it's tough to say, right? And I would lean towards what what he's suggesting is 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 that the the negation of a double pivot, so using more of a four three three, just just in terms of having because it's much more press resistant. I think with Angisa, like probably an idea of like Angisa as one of the eights, and then Ruiz in, in the sort of left side of eight, and then Lobotka as a six. Jelinski is now not so much informed. So I, I do like that formation more. Like one thing that Spalletti has tried, which is to use an extra fullback in midfield. And sometimes Angisa will make a half space run high to kind of stretch, particularly against a t- particularly against teams that will play a back five. And this is a very common theme in Italy. And I'm sure we'll get to this in the Milan segment as well, that teams that play a back five, back three, a lot of the times will leave a half space for a fullback to rotate into and like Di Lorenzo I saw this when I was in Verona I was Di, Di Lorenzo would by himself and probably was instructed to do that as well just rotate in and, and basically then you have a decisional crisis for because the wing back then is the wing back supposed to follow him or is the wing back supposed to stay wide and since it's most of these teams with the back five will play a man marking then then you do want to follow him but then he has that sort of dynamic advantage and the element of surprise and the rotation and Di Lorenzo is very, very good at those kind of things and some of the Milan teams as well. So that's just one way to think at it. But I think to kind of answer your question, I generally like them more as a 4-3-3. But the nice thing now for Spalletti is that they have the flexibility, if everyone's healthy now, is to go a 4-2-3-1 and then maybe use like Mertens as a 10 or if like Zielinski is playing well, or even like Elmas as a 10, which, which, which you can do. Well, let's move on to Milan, who I think may be the, the most interesting team in terms of the fact that they're so different from, from everyone else, really. And I, I think that is because, as you've already mentioned, pressing is, is more of a raison d'etre for them rather than a necessary aspect. And Or maybe, as you said, you know, they press to score, and so pressing is, is a big part of their attacking play as well, in a way that maybe some of the other teams aren't. Because obviously, as you mentioned, with some of those press and possess sides, the pressing schemata is designed for them to win the ball back to then possess to then score so yeah let's talk a little bit about that because I think what's interesting about that style of play is that it almost feels like it's going out of fashion at the really high levels Um, we've just had Jesse Marsh leaving 
RB Leipzig and not fitting in. And, and you know, that was uh, the Red Bull model. And RB Leipzig is their premier side in their multi-club system. So it feels as though their premier side has moved away from this style of play, suggesting that maybe it doesn't work at the most elite level. So what's your thoughts on the, the Milan side from a from a pressing point of view? And, and I guess the aspect of them being an elite side who are using this style of play? And one thing is that I have learned listening to this podcast is, is context. You had a, an entire episode about context. So <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it because the context of Germany, perhaps, where this is something that certainly has been around since Ralf Rangnick for 20 years or so. And you can almost argue that there are too many teams playing that style. Maybe not that extreme, but with Italy, I think it's a newer context in that sense. Like I, I, I talked about how teams that play like a the Gasparini kind of man pressing, but but this is this is different, right? Like this is basically sort of like ball oriented, um, you know, spatial high pressing. So in that sense, it's relatively new. And I mentioned about the irony of not hiring Rangnick and then kind of implementing <laughs> very very similar ideas. But it's, it's also, I think, fits the identity of this this Milan team because it has a lot of these players who are either quite young or, or dynamic, you know, like whether it's like Teo Hernandez or Tomori or Kalulu, who's been kind of the breakout star and, you know, talked about the roster construction of, of how Maldini and, and Sara and, and Jeffrey Moncada were able to put together this roster. But you have a lot of these players. Tonali certainly made for it. Benacer in some ways. Ante Rebic, who doesn't play that much, but I mean, can you think of a better pressing player than, than Ante Rebic, right? And I think it comes down to that. And and then, yeah, okay, maybe Giroud and Ibrahimovic are not really the... But Krunic is the excellent presence. So I think that's the identity of this Milan team is just kind of overwhelming athleticism and energy. Like, for example, the, the, the game against Napoli, they had 280 pressures. So just to put that into context, um, currently I think the big five leagues have um, Eintracht Frankfurt, who averaged like 177 a game. So this is almost 100 pressures more against the Napoli team that is arguably one of the two or three best press-resistant sides. And they gave up like under half a goal, like the lowest of Napoli's season, which, where they had everybody at their disposal. So it wasn't like a, this is a full Napoli team. So it's hard to argue against that. But there's also other sides to it. I think what I like more about Milan is is that where they kind of differ from just sort of a generic high-pressing thing is that they do have a lot of these solutions with the ball. And the one that doesn't, I think, work so much well is when they try to do kind of a 3-1-5-1 with good spacing and good structure occupation, kind of stretching the last line with sometimes all six players. But I feel like sometimes maybe some of the midfield playmaking is lacking there. Cassier has had a disappointing season as he's kind of leaving. And Tonali has had a very good season, an excellent season against the ball, but maybe isn't necessarily that sort of player who can break those kind of schemes. And then what does work, I think, is more what Pioli has been doing is basically if he doesn't have too many of these playmaking midfielders, he's been using the fullbacks as the playmakers. And he has two of them who are very, very intelligent and very dynamic. So you saw like Calabria, and this is, I think, already last season he was doing this. Calabria scored this goal against Atalanta in the first 20 seconds. And it's, it's very much almost like a, a set play, but it's basically anytime they face and they do face a lot of three, five man defenses who then give them the space, he'll just bring one or at least sometimes two fullbacks with the ball or sometimes without the ball into the half space. And then they will either get it via a third man run or just a direct carry with Theo Hernandez. And he's, he's been unstoppable in that sense. And it's very, very hard to defend for a lot of teams, even if you know it's coming. Like, I'm sure it's not really news after 30 matches that they're doing this, but it's still like, I, I mean, I keep a lot of these notes in sort of screenshots. Uh, and then I have one that's called inside fullback. And then Milan is the one that, keep showing up on this, particularly Teo Hernandez, which is just them to, they can do it against the low block as well, but they can also certainly do it to kind of generate this transition as well. And then obviously when you high press them as well, like sometimes you'll even see like Calabria will show up in the sixth space and, and with this back to the goalkeeper and then receive it. So against like a team like Torino or something. So this is, this is really, really interesting. I think a couple other teams do it, but, but Milan's perhaps the best. And What's also good is that they do have the wingers for it. So the other benefit is that you open you open up the wings, right? Because if you move your fullback inside, then you have Rafael Leao, who also got a chance to watch him live a couple of weeks ago. And he just does these things that you kind of think are, well, maybe it's not a good idea to take on three guys when you're supposed to just like 
go the other way, but but he just makes it happen all the time. And then you have Junior Macias as an inverted winger who can get a shot off of probably maybe only a decent shot. So <laughs> it's also I think it's also a way to kind of mask their creation issues, right? Because it's not like they, they don't really have a, a number ten who can generate a lot. It's not like Ibrahimovic and, and Giroud or Rebic are strikers who will create stuff on their own at, at, at their age or with their sort of age or in case of Rebic kind of technical deficiencies. So in that sense, it's, it's a way to generate attacks. So that, that's why what I think is, is they did they, they, anytime I think Pioli just wants to have intensity and wants to generate transitional moments and can do it with fullbacks um, in these half spaces. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things for me about Milan is just how much they generate through ball carrying, I think more so than maybe any other team in the, in the, in the top five that we're talking about. So we've mentioned the fullbacks, you've mentioned Rafael Leao. They have players as well, like Ibrahim Diaz as well, who's very much, I think, a ball carrier. And I find that, that sort of aspect fascinating. Again, it all stems from their overall style, right? Which is this win the ball back and then attack at speed and, and press to score. Part of it is out of necessity because probably... Okay, Tomori has been excellent since he joined, but I think for the last couple of years, it's been Simon Chiar and, and Romagnoli as the center backs. And, you know, Chiar went down against, um, I think Salernitana was, was, was not sure he went out and lost for the season. And Romagnoli is a guy who, because of the lack of speed and, you know, he's, he's also leaving. It's not a guy who, although he has had a couple of good games, it's not a guy who can play. So those, those primary passers of center backs, you don't really have anymore. And I think it's been kind of a makeshift thing with Kalulu, who's been really, really good in Tomori. While they do have some passing qualities, particularly Tomori, it's, it's perhaps maybe, and it's also like none of the, none of the guys that they drop back into the sort of back line from, from central midfielder are great progressors. I think Ben Asser can be that way, but he and Kessier have also been fairly turnover prone. So it's, I think, some ways to mitigate that. I guess the other thing that I find interesting about about this is that whenever I watch Milan play, and maybe this just comes down to the aesthetic angle and, and, and what you were talking about earlier on about subjectivity, but it feels as though they are never convincing in terms of like their, particularly their attacking play. It just seems as though they, they, they do get a lot of upside from their intensity and, and the fact that they are a bit of an outlier. And I wondered if you thought that there was much variance that comes into this sort of style of play. I guess, again, this is something that I'm watching a lot now, watching Leeds United. Some games you'll generate enough to win a, a game and other games you'll look like you're completely out of ideas. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that from a sort of tactical play style point of view. That was certainly evident for me watching them live against a team like Empoli who are you know uh, an intense team but certainly a, a leaky team in terms of you know getting I mean, conceded the most expected goals in the goals uh, for like two-thirds of the season so you would expect something and, and it was very hard for Milan to to generate repeatable patterns of chances and it can be that way but again I mean when you think about what they've lost with Donnarumma, and although Mike Mannion has been an amazing replacement, or Chalanoglu as well, you kind of don't want to downplay that. But but you're certainly is legit criticism when you see them in the Champions League and how they suffered against like a team like Liverpool or you know even to lesser extent Atletico Madrid or, or even Porto. I mean, there was one Porto game where they had like zero point two xG or something. So. I think there's there's definitely merit to it, and and they do like there were teams who struggled against like Spezia or something, and so it, it does come into play. And and again, it's you look at them as the experience of watching Giroud, who has scored really really important games, but just watching him for a full ninety and just how much he labors. And I mean, then Zlatan, who I don't even know what he does. It's 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 like it's a I mean, it's a marvel that he even plays, but but just how hard they have to work for these kind of things, and it's very difficult for them to kind of generate these kind of patterns that will break down things so i think it's been a wonderful accomplishment for them but for sure that's the other side of it that you're talking about is that it's much more of an emotional experience and i think you get more of an appreciation for it when you see it live as opposed to on 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 tv when especially when you're not watching it attentively and i think i have been asked that question by by a few people is that like so what what is this milan team about and and I think if you don't watch them week to week and if you don't sort of watch them sort of analyst eye and, and you don't look at these patterns, you can get sort of a superficial view of them and, and that might be negative. But I think that's probably underselling them, although I, I do take your points. 
Well, I realise that time has flown. It's been great chatting to you, Abel, about this. Maybe just a few concluding remarks about the, the sort of tactics of the Serie A title race quickly this season. I think one of the things that will come down to it, and a lot of the people who follow the Italian league are, are t- talking about opponent strength and what's left. And in that sense, like Inter, who might have played themselves out of it, have the easier schedule because it's basically like an average opponent is about the 15th place. Aside from Juventus, which is now, you know, and Verona, maybe the t- two kind of tough teams that they play. And when, whenever this episode will be out, we will be a lot smarter after this 31st match day. Because now, you, okay, Inter, as dire as they have been, aside from the Salernitana win, now they have had time to kind of regroup and they have an eight-game season and, and see if they can bring much out of it. And conversely, I think with, with, with Juve, you kind of think, okay, well, okay, their, their Champions League is gone. So they kind of have to throw everything into it. And they do have, after Inter, they do have a very, very favorable schedule with maybe two tough matches against Lazio and Fiorentina, which could decide things. But uh, realistically, there's not too much for them to do other than kind of hang on for uh, fourth place. Um, as, as I would say, you know, with, with, with Inter's gaming hand against Bologna, which should be played middle of April, but some kind of beyond reach. And then I think for Napoli, it's probably a team that, you know, needs to do basically a, a job at Atalanta. And then the get through these next three games against Fiorentina and Roma, two of those are home games. So that, that should work well. But if they can get these ugly wins, which I think Spalletti is very, very capable of this, and, and perhaps more so than, than Milan, although Milan have, have done a good job of that, and then I could, I could see them take it home. But Milan probably have the toughest schedule, particularly the last, probably the like last seven games now that Genoa have a, have a team that's really hard to play against because it's Torino, Genoa, Lazio, Fiorentina, Verona, Atalanta, Sassuolo. So all these teams, and really their, their only easy game is Bologna. So I think if there hadn't been this break, people would have given Milan a much higher chance. And even now, they're still only getting like 45% at a lot of places. <laughs> I'm not going to do the thing where, where I pick them because I always hate doing that. But <laughs> Or just pick anybody, really. But I think those are kind of the, the scenarios that you need to think about is who can win sort of these uglier games. And I think Napoli seem more capable. And whether Milan, in the teams where they did struggle against sort of Verona, struggled them, they came, came back and won them. But you would think that intensity-wise, those are actually matches that they like because then they can, can just kind of out-muscle them in, in some ways. So it's that. And then Inter just kind of have become a little bit like a dark horse. And, but we will, we will for sure know much more about this Derby della Italia after this. Well, everything to play for in the final eight games of Serie A. Uh, no doubt we will enjoy watching those unfold. Just a reminder that the next episode out will be part two of the Thiago Esteban podcast talking a lot more about the specifics of using tactics within scouting a nice chunky episode that so plenty to get into so keep an eye out for that one abel what's the best way for people to follow your stuff well it's still twitter so i'm at bundespia which which now seems like a a mistake although i mean you know just for the record i did like Serie A, and when i was a kid and playing i spent a lot of time playing in italy so it was kind of the first love but to the extent that i do stuff on Twitter, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, I do a lot of things that aren't so public anymore, but PL on Twitter is probably the best way. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.